Hi, I'm Tim. This is We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit. I think one of the best ways for each of us to grow is by learning from each other. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today I'm joined by Ryan Evans, who is a father, husband, son, and co-founder of Tend, a simple tool that helps businesses understand where their customers are coming from. Uh, he also founded a company called Bite Size PR and formerly had a PR agency called Rand Media Group. Do you still run your PR agency? Uh, no, I don't. So it was more of a general uh, marketing agency, but uh, yeah, I, I don't have any uh, more clients on that uh, for, for a few years now. Gotcha. And speaking of a few years, I remember, <clears throat> excuse me, I remember when... I don't remember what year, but there was this event at um, the headquarters of a company called 37 Signals, who is now called Basecamp. And there were a bunch of people there. Um, I don't remember what it was for, but you were there and you spoke. Um, again, I'm not sure what the topic was, but you spoke and you told this story of how you um, you know, ended up going to prison due to kind of like insider trading and and I want to talk about that today, but I remember at this event, you know, I had known you for a little bit, um, kind of from the Chicago technology scene, and I didn't know any of this. And I watched it, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like, and not, it wasn't like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, I have been interacting with an ex-convict, you know, like I should leave the room. It was more like, I want to know this guy's story because the guy I know here is this most, you know, friendly, warm, welcoming, like I want to help everyone I can in person, but I want to know like how he ended up in that situation. So that's my long way of saying thank you for being here today because that's what I want to learn. Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about it. I, I do remember that. Uh, I actually haven't spoken a, about this a lot publicly, um, but that was a, a friend of mine, Eric Liu, uh, organized uh, a Hacker News meetup, I believe, is, is what that was, and invited me in, and and we talked about that. So I think that's that was the that was where I, I talked about it. But I had also kind of given a speech at uh, MicroConf, which uh, where it was like kind of the first big event that I talked about this, and then they never ended up releasing any of the video or anything. So it, it kind of just you know, <laughs> stayed in that little community. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I've been in the tech scene for you know, several years and it's it, kind of a weird thing because when I first got out of prison, um, it, it wasn't really something that I wanted to tell everybody about, <laughs> you know, like to, sure, just as sure. an introduction, Hey, I'm Ryan, I'm doing this new company or whatever. And by the way, I just got out of prison. So it's not really, it's kind of a weird uh, small talk thing. Um, I, I never really minded talking about it, but you just, you don't want, you know, I didn't want first impressions necessarily to, um, think of me first as a convict and second as whatever I was trying to do. Um, so, and, and then as time passed, it became this weird thing where, you know, after, you know, it'd been several years or, or even longer, um, then it became almost awkward. Like, okay, now there's this whole bunch of people that know about me and don't really know this background. So I, I am always happy to, to talk about it though. I, I like these, you know, longer formats because it, it gives more context 
um, to the situation and, you know, kind of my, my thoughts on it. Absolutely. And I, I'm so happy that you're uh, willing to talk about it too, because the context and, and long format and kind of sharing the story is what I'm all about. Um, and that's kind of what I want to explore because I'm really interested in, um, in how you, so many parts of it, but really how you got through that. And before we dive into that, um, just to set the stage for those who don't know your story, um, and correct me at any point if I'm uh, sharing misinformation, but you served a 21-month sentence for what, I don't know what your official charges were, but it basically amounted to insider trading, right? Right. Yep. That's right. Yeah, I was um, yeah, sentenced to 21 months. And, and it, it, unlike state time where people think, oh, well, if you, you know, you're sentenced to 21 months, what'd you do? Two weeks? And, and no, uh, in federal time, you do 85% of your time. So um, I think that ended up being 17 months and a few weeks. And then after that, you go to a halfway house um, and you're there for a little bit and they quote unquote reintegrate you into society. And then um, and then you have uh, probationary time, too, where you check in with a probation officer. They you have to get permission, kind of like the Dukes of Hazard, you have to get permission to leave, you know, this this area. And it's just a general, you know continuation of a demeaning, <laughs> very, uh, paternalistic uh, situation. So that, that, all that went on, you know, for a while. I mean, I had to get <clears throat> permission from a judge to leave the country to go on, uh, my honeymoon. So, um, yeah, so, but that's right. That's about the time that it was. So you end up serving about a 17 month, 17 months of a 21 month, uh, sentence, um, and then leading up to that, uh, just to, again, set the stage, you had not one, but two trials, the second of which ended up uh, resulting in the the prison sentence. Um, one thing I noticed when I was kind of thinking about your story and researching this a little bit is um, on the about page of your personal website, it says, I'm in the midst of one hell of a comeback story. <laughs> and I was curious what you mean by that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think that this, this is, uh, I mean, it is a comeback story. It's been a while now. So, I mean, uh, maybe, maybe the, the story arc is a little long, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, when you get out, um, it's, you're starting from below nothing, you know, you're starting from, you know, when, so just to kind of set the context a little bit. Um, I started out in finance, started out my career in finance. So I was doing investment banking and I did commercial real estate lending and, um, I had a good job. So I made good money. I was respected. I did, you know, um, I did well in my career. And when I went through, and then I went through all this, um, I lost all of that, you know, I lost not just the money. So the, the government, you know, took all the money that I, uh, had made both on the insider trading and just any money I had. Um, and then, and then some even, um, actually when I got out of prison, they, in order to get off probation, I had to, uh, pay a fine. And if I remember correctly, the, the fine was something like $7,500, which, um, I didn't have. So I actually had to put that, uh, $7,500 on a credit card. So I went from this, you know, good career, uh, where I was making good money and on a path to, to be successful to instantly having, you know, all of that taking away, not just the money, but also, you know, the reputation of, 
oh my gosh, this guy went to prison. And um, so that's kind of what I would say is the comeback story is, is coming back from, you know, that, you know, coming out and then building from that was, was hard, not just logistically, but also um, I think probably the bigger thing is um, it's like, it's hard on your ego, you know? So when you've had any kind of success or you've had, um, uh, you, you've seen the light of, of a good life. And then all of a sudden that's all taken from you and people have varying you know, opinions on you. You know, when I say, Oh, <clears throat> I'm an ex con, a lot of people are going to immediately judge. And then, you know, I would say most people are gracious and they will, um, if they listen to your full story and underst- understand who you are, they take in the totality of your personality, but it takes time. So, um, that, that's the comeback story that, the yeah, I'm talking about. And you mentioned people judge when they find out. I think that's what happened to me that night was, you know, I had known you and then I'm listening to a story and all of a sudden my brain is saying, wait, he's a criminal, you know, a criminal, you know, an ex-convict. And then all of a sudden in my mind, all the images and thoughts I have around what an ex-convict is supposed to be are popping up. And I'm like fighting with myself in my head, like, he can't be an ex-convict. I've had a beer with him. I've talked to him. We've, Yeah. And, you know, listening to you now, I'm like, I'm going back to that night and remembering my initial reaction. Like, I just feel bad about it now because I, I was judging you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the common thing. I, and I can understand that because I don't think that I would have been any different. You know, I, I think even if you're very open-minded, um, the whole, uh, our society is very conditioned on, um, judging cons. I mean, you know, there's always, you know, the, the joke is always, you know, like, uh, don't drop the soap in prison. Right. And it's funny. And the only way that that can be funny is if, uh, the people who are in prison are demeaned to the point where, you know, that joke doesn't even bother people, you know? And, um, yeah, it's the, the, the most, you know, profound insult that you can hurl at someone is, you know, you're an ex-con. I mean, that's, that's almost like proof that your character is flawed, proof that you're, you know, not on the same level of, uh, anyone else in society. And so it's a very common thing. And I don't, I don't fault anyone for it really, because like I said, I, I was like that too. And it takes, you know, it, it takes a lot of thinking about this to get to a place where, um, where you don't think that. And, and most commonly the way that people, uh, come to that realization to come to be gracious or to come to understand someone who's went through that, um, that situation is if they had someone close to them go through that. And which in our country is actually, there's a lot of, a lot of people that have done that. So, um, we imprison, you know, more people, uh, than any, any country in the world. I mean, when we're talking about you know, impressive, uh, oppressive countries like China and Russia, I mean, per capita, you know, we, we imprison a ton of people. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a common thing. And I think in, in part, you know, I don't, I don't mind talking about it because I think it does help break that down a bit. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's a, that's a common reaction when I was you know, trying to fight as I was, you know, building, uh, building my business and, and trying to start over. Yeah, I can't imagine. Just like you said, those words ex-con, I imagine people would freeze in their tracks and probably give you all sorts of looks or just, you know, not say anything, but they're thinking so much. 
Yeah. I mean, to this day, I mean, even when I tell people, and it's been a long time now um, since all this happened, but uh, to this day, when I tell the story, because I, I always feel, you know, when I get close to somebody that I need to tell the story without hiding, it was this weird kind of balance of, you don't, I don't want it to be the first thing out of my mouth really. Cause it's not the most relevant thing in my life now, but, <laughs> but, uh, I also don't want to feel like I've hidden this from somebody, you know, if I become friends with someone or, or whatever. So I, I, you know, then when I say it, when I, when I tell somebody they're, they always, the reaction's always the same. I mean, I joke around a lot, so instantly they think it's a joke. I'm joking around. And then they see it in my face and they realize I'm not joking. And then, <laughs> you know, the, the shock washes over their face and then they're like, oh my gosh. And then it, 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 the other, the other thing about this is that you have to be in a spot where you can talk about it for a half hour or so at least, because immediately people have just, uh, an endless amount of questions. And so, um, yeah, it's, and it, which is always, it's always interesting. I mean, there's some common questions and then there's, you know, uh, some questions that people don't want to ask, like <laughs> they don't want to ask, but, um, they are curious about, and I, I know what all those questions are, so I can, I can tease it out of them, but yeah, it's a, it's a, always an interesting dynamic. So you're working in finance and, um, you know, you end up stumbling into what results to insider trading two trials, you end up in prison. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, this is not what, obviously, before I heard this story, that I ever would have thought about you uh, having done. And, you know, from what I understand, your story definitely doesn't start there. You actually, uh, prior to going to school for finance, had nothing really to do with finance. Um, and you grew up on a pig farm in rural Michigan. Right. Yeah. What is a, uh, what is a pig farm? Yeah. So um, I grew up on a pig farm in Michigan. So, I mean, my dad just had, you know, hundreds of, of pigs that he raised and uh, you just raise pigs, you, <laughs> you know, take care of them and then you sell them off to market. So it, we also had other crops. So it was mostly he had pigs and then he would grow uh, corn or soybeans or, um, you know, whatever. And uh, yeah, he did that up until, um, until I was fairly young, um, at which point, uh, we lost the farm. Um, this has been part of a general trend over, you know, the last hundred years or so. I mean, 90% of Americans used to be farmers and now I don't know what the percentage is, but it's, it's definitely in single, low single digits. Um, and he was part of that. So my family had been farming to various degrees through generations and he had this family farm and had pigs and then, um, you know, the economy changed and, uh, we, we basically went bankrupt. So, uh, at that point, um, you know, they took a good chunk of our, uh, land and, uh, went through the bankruptcy process. And then my dad emerged out on the other side, um, working at the post office. And, you know, that's, that's where he worked, uh, you know, throughout my, uh, like up until, until recently where he retired as a, as a postmaster, um, so yeah, my, my background is very different. I, you know, I, now I live in Chicago. I love, I love the city. Um, and you know, I went to school here too. And what drew me here was the allure of the big city. Um, I grew up in, you know, I watched the movie wall street as a kid and I love that, that movie. And I was always fascinated by the city. Uh, I got, I, I think I was bored of a small town life. Um, I, 
I can now appreciate some of the attractions of a small town, but uh, at the time I just, I wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible and go to a big city. And um, DePaul, to their marketing credit, uh, sent a big glossy uh, brochure to my house, had buildings and the, you know, the stock exchange and, you know, this beautiful skyline and business. And I was, I was kind of hooked. So uh, I went in, I went to, from the pig farm to study finance um, at DePaul and, and I loved it. I, I, I devoured, you know, the, all, everything related to do with business or related to business and finance. I, I ate it up. And so I, I worked in, in, um, I went to school and then as I, when I was in school, I got a job with, um, a, a guy who was buying shopping centers. He was an, an investor and I worked, uh, with him and hustled and we really clicked and he gave me more and more responsibility. So I got to do some, some pretty cool stuff, uh, in school, uh, alongside this, um, this guy who was a, a real estate investor. And I mean, even before I got to school, I was fascinated with investing and finance. Um, you know, I took my little earnings. I mean, I had done odd jobs. I would chop wood for my, my dad or detassel corn or bale hay, or one of the most uh, ridiculous jobs that I had was picking up boulders out of a, uh, out of a field all day. And <laughs> all of these jobs as ridiculous as they seem now were, I loved them because I was just making money and I would take that money. And then when I was pretty young, I, I want to say that I was maybe 13 or 14, something like that. I went into the local, um, the local broker there. And I just said, I want in the market, you know, <laughs> kind of this, uh, I don't know, naive kid. And I, I watching too much, too many movies and TV and stuff. And he kind of got a chuckle out of me and, you know, said, all right, come on in here. <laughs> and he kind of explained what they do. And I said, okay, great. And then basically he took my few hundred bucks and, um, he just put it in a mutual fund or something. And, um, so, but I would check it all the time. So back then, you know, you could actually check your, uh, your balance or your, you know, how the market had done by dialing a 1-800 number. And at our school, there was a, a pay phone and every now and then I would, in high school, I would go and I would check to see what my, my balance of my mutual fund was, because, you know, because I thought <laughs> I was, I was a big, you know, big hitter in the market. Um, that's and amazing. yeah. And then, and then, you know, like that's how I got my start though. So I was fortunate in that when I put the money in, uh, the market did well. And I also in working for this real estate investor guy during college, um, he was very generous and paid me bonuses for some of the things that I had done. And, um, between that little initial bankroll and then getting bonuses, I had accumulated enough money to, to actually, quote unquote, you know, trade in the market. And that's kind of what set me up for this. So that, that was during the dot-com bubble. And so not only did I have this initial relatively small amount of money, uh, but then, you know, everyone was a genius, myself included for buying any internet stock because they all went up, you know? So I had accumulated kind of a, around that time I had gotten to, you know, I had about $20,000 um, in the market, um, in college. And, and so I thought, yeah, I thought I was a, I was a really big deal. And, and I thought making money was easy. So yeah, $20,000, I mean, it's a lot of money, I think even today, but especially, um, having just started out, 
you you talked about um, your family on the farm losing the farm and then basically going bankrupt. That's a big deal for, I imagine, your dad and your your mom and everyone, um, and for a family unit. How did you feel when that happened? Like, what what were your feelings as you know you kind of noticed what was happening? Yeah, um, it is a big deal. Um, it's uh, the the word that comes to mind is that it's heartbreaking. Um, it's heartbreaking, you know, not just because uh, you are going through this terrible financial situation, but also, you know, for my my dad. And we have to understand about farming is that it's not really just a job. I mean, it's it's a lifestyle. I mean, it's it's a it's who you are. You know, people really uh, farmers really associate you know their profession with who they are as a person you know it, it's deeper than than a job you know you don't just say ah well i think i'm just going to go from farmer to something else and it's not a big deal so I, I think that it was um it was heartbreaking because that farm had been in our family for a while uh, for a few generations and losing that was hard um i think you know my dad um, I think it hit him very, very hard because he felt like a failure, even though it, he, there was, you know, nothing he could have done in his position to change it. And he was one of the hardest working guys that, you know, I'd know I've ever known, but, um, that was heartbreaking. It was, you know, it was hard on, uh, my, my parents' marriage, certainly. I mean, they didn't ultimately stick together, stay together. And so, um, that was difficult. It was, it was, it was a tumultuous time and it, and it, in it, at least in my mind, made me think about money in a, in a very different way in that, you know, I just, um, I never wanted to be in that kind of position. I never wanted to, you know, go without, uh, money and, you know, yeah, it, it, it definitely, I think it, looking back on it, it drove, um, a lot of my, uh, decisions in, in, you know, probably bent my, my values a bit to what I was, what I was willing to do to, to get money. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it it probably deeply affected you, which is completely understandable. Your dad, you speak a lot about him. It seems, I sense a lot of admiration for your dad. Um, was he the strongest person you'd say you knew as a kid or was there someone else that kind of in your mind was that, that superhero? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone looks, you know, at, at their, their parents and, you know, I, I had my, you know, I, I looked up to my parents and, you know, re- respected them a great deal. Um, I also spent a lot of time with my, my grandmother. Um, so she just lived up the road and she was, uh, um, she was kind of one of those, those outside forces. So she was a, um, second grade teacher and she had a tremendous influence as well. just in, um, you know, when those hard times were going on, when, you know, everything was going on, she was, um, you know, a, a steady source and, a and, and a steady source of, of encouragement and just, she kind of pushed me honestly to, to do things. And so, um, yeah, I had, you know, I had some good family influence and I mean, this is one thing too, that I always want to be careful of. So I think you always hear this at, uh, entrepreneur conferences, like as part of the intro, the, the, the glamorous intro is always, I came from nothing. I worked really hard. I built up everything and now I have everything and now I'm rich. Look at how great I am. 
And I, I'm always, I always hesitate a little bit about that because while we, you know, I did go through some hard, you know, financial times as a, as a kid, um, I always had food and clothes and I could go to school and, but, but bigger than that, you know, my parents were much more, I mean, they were emotionally stable and loving and, and cared for me. And I think that it's always hard to judge, you know, what people have or don't have by their background, because <clears throat> in their, the, the values that they tried to instill in me and the, the love that they gave me and, um, and that didn't really make my, my, whatever, like ascendancy or rise from, from that point, that dramatic and shocking because they were supportive and they were, you know, good, they were a good foundation for me, you know, whereas a lot of times people don't have that where they have something like, even if they're, we're wealthy, you, you might have, you might be, you know, have everything in the world, everything paid for, everything's great. And then you have an emotionally abusive parents or something. Well, in my mind, that person is starting from, you know, a much weaker position in life has a lot more to overcome than someone who, you know, has some poverty, but has like, you know, emotional support. So yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I always like try to, I, I always want to like detail that nuance. And then also keep in mind, I mean, poverty is very well, very relative. I mean, I had, like I said, I had food and clothes and, you know, had a school. So, and also I had the opportunity to go to college. I mean, I could, you know, um, I had student loans certainly, but, um, you know, I was able to go to college. So yeah, I don't know. I always like to kind of like footnote that, <laughs> that, that upbringing before I, you make it too, um, I don't know, too heroic of a, of a, you know, uh, of a story. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. Like you bring up a good point. Poverty is relative and obviously all our upbringings are relative, but at the same time, I mean, you know, regardless of, you know, assuming, you know, you're not in a millionaire, richy rich family where, you know, money is no object and all that, um, you know, going through bankruptcy and losing a farm, especially if it's a lifestyle, I imagine that, like I said, has an effect on the family and therefore you. So it's, it's just interesting to understand. Um, so you, you end up then, I mean, DePaul sends their brochure. Uh, it's, you know, you're sold hook, line and sinker. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're off to the big city, uh, study finance at DePaul. And then you end up working. Uh, you mentioned getting a job with the real estate investor. So then it, at some point, um, you end up con continuing along your career, um, working in finance. Um, and I want to explore the, the moment where this, what ends up becoming insider trading, but this, this idea comes from a friend. Um, can you tell me more about like what, what was this idea the friend had and, and how you responded to it? Yes. So, I mean, I, I've been in finance, you know, I've had, I've had investor banker friends for a long time. And one of my, oh, it was, it was my best friend, uh, worked at an investment bank and we always just talked, we talked shop. We talked about finance. What are you working on? You know, what, who's doing what we were, he, he, came from, uh, he came from a pretty modest background as well. And so, um, we were just fascinated by the whole, you know, the whole finance world. So 
he would talk openly about deals that he was working on. And um, so as an, the type of investment banking that he did was he was an analyst. He was a young guy. He was, you know, doing Excel models and, you know, writing a memorandum and, you know, doing that sort of thing. And uh, so, but he knew the type of deals that they were working on were mergers and acquisitions. So what that meant, and for very big companies. So what that meant was one company, one public company would buy another public company. And in going through that process, the, what that meant was that my friend knew exactly what price the company was going to get bought for. So as an example, if a, if a stock was publicly traded, say they're trading at $20 a share, someone comes and buys them, another company comes and buys them, and they would, in order to acquire a controlling position in the company, they might offer the shareholders $40 a share. Which means, you know, if you own the stock at twenty, instantaneously, you know, the your stock doubles in value. Okay, now, it <laughs> in investment banking they um, make it you know clear that you're not supposed to tell anybody this because like people can obviously profit on it, word can get out, it can ruin the deal, um, and then the the other bigger thing is that it is potentially illegal. And uh, I'll say potentially potentially illegal because the law is actually very complicated. It's a lot of, there's a lot of gray area in there, but they, they don't say potentially illegal. They say it's illegal. Okay. So there are, <laughs> okay. there, there are situations where it is and isn't, but basically it's ingrained in, in, um, uh, those guys not to, not to, you know, disclose this information. And, you know, I also, you know, as a, I, my friend is telling me things and trust, like I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take advantage of it or trade on it or do anything. I never did any of that. Um, until one day he came back and said, you know, he's working 80 hour weeks, you know, um, just crazed. And he came home one day and just, you know, at the time I was still living with, um, a couple of roommates in this, you know, crappy apartment in Chicago. And he brought this, this pitch book home and he said, you know, uh, we're working on this deal and I know that I don't remember exactly the price it was, but I know that this, this stock is going to go up, you know, and in a few days or, you know, a week or whatever it was. And he said, you know, we kind of, I kind of knew what he was talking about and he said, you should buy this. And so, cause he knew that I had some, you know, I had some money. I was in the market you know, so to speak. And so we kind of just like thought about it a little bit and talked about it. And then we did some research and I I use this phrase lately because internet research circa this would have been, you know, early two thousands. So internet research then was not what it is now. Like the whole world is online now, but, but then there, there were certainly some court cases. There was, there was news, you know, that was on there and essentially, you know, what we had looked into with insider trading was that, you know, that very, very few people had actually gone to prison for it. So like one person, uh, Michael Milken had gone to prison for insider trading and he had done a several hundred million dollars. He had made like just a ridiculous amount of money. Right. And we just thought, and he went, he ended up going to prison, I think for, I think it was, I think he was sentenced to a year and a half or something. So, 
you know, and we were like, well, that this clearly isn't that, you know, this is not that. And then all the other cases that we looked at were kind of like, there's all these like different use, different, you know, weird cases. So we thought, well, um, as long as that, you know, I don't give you money. So I don't necessarily like bribe you, you know, and like give you a kickback. That's like the common element that we saw. And then I think we're okay, you know, because, and the reason for that is that this is where the, the nuance gets, gets kind of weird. If you're, let's say, uh, you know, the, the, let's say that you're in, um, on the train, right. And you're going to work and you hear somebody talk about a company and they say, I, and then you, you know, they work in an investment bank and, um, you hear that this company's going to get bought and you go and you buy and you trade on that. Well, that's not really insider trading like that. You, that's actually like, you can do that. You're allowed to do that. And the reason that you're allowed to do that is because you don't owe, you don't have any duty to the company. It's just information. You know, you got lucky with that information. You're free to trade on it. Okay. The, now, and this, I won't get too much into the legal theory here, but if you were to know someone at a company and approach them and try to like bribe them with money to give you information or blackmail them or some, something like that, then obviously you, know, you can get into trouble for profiting off of that. But this was kind of a gray area. So we were very good friends and kind of the idea was, well, look, you, you feed me this information. I will, you know, make a bunch of money. And then, you know, a few years down the road, like we'll just... Um, you know, go in on a business deal and lo and behold, like you'll be, you know, you'll be an owner and, and, and whatever, and we'll kind of work it out that way. So that was kind of like the plan. Right. So anyway, we decided to go forward and do this and, and keep in mind, I only started off with, you know, 20, some, you know, $20,000 or something. And so he told me to do this. I went, I bought the stock. I put all my money into the stock. And the stock was Jostens, which is a, a class ring company. They got bought and I put all my money in there. And I remember this was the old days where you'd watch, you know, <laughs> TV and, you know, like we, you'd watch CNBC or whatever it was at the time. And you'd see the, you know, the ticker scroll down to the bottom. So I remember the markets opening and I was at my apartment and I was just watching it scroll. And then boom, there it was it'd gone up and that $20,000 turned into $30,000 overnight. And I thought, Oh my God, like this is a big deal. And it, it's not, wasn't just a big deal because of the 10 grand that I made overnight. The bigger deal was that I knew the implications. So, you know, one of the first things you learn in finance is compounding and, you know, if you can earn, you know, a, a 10 to 12% return every year, um, if, and if you just start with a little amount of money, by the time you're retire, you'll be, you'll be wealthy. If you just sock away a little money because of compounding, well, this was compounding at a, such a fast rate that you could basically compress all that time, that lifetime down into a year or two, probably. So, because the next deal that we did, not only did I put now, so now I had roughly $30,000. The next deal that we did, not only did I put the 30,000 in, but I also took out margin so that I could double my purchasing power, meaning I could borrow uh, from the broker, you know, another $30,000. So I could actually buy $60,000 worth of stock, you know, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> and so, you know, the next deal happened and then, you know, my, my $30,000 position, I'm, I'm, I'm estimating here roughly, but basically it doubled again. You know, it, it doubled, it gone from 30 
to 60,000 bucks. Right. And then, um, you know, I was just thinking, holy cow. Now keep in mind, um, I'm working, I'm still working. I'm living in this apartment. I'm not buying any crazy, anything crazy. I'm not, you know, my goal wasn't really to buy stuff. I, I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to get wealthy, right? I wanted to be wealthy at a young age. And what, I, you when, know, when you say you want to get wealthy, like, are we talking like you wanted to become, I never want to worry about money again, or you just wanted to make a couple thousand more? Well, the, the idea that we had in our head is that we would, um, both have a million dollars. Um, so you had was, a goal, you had a number in mind, like yeah, we each want a yeah. million. Right. Because so we were, I would say tw- we were 21 or 22 years old at the time. And so I, yeah, I, I like, I wanted to be a millionaire at a young age and I thought it was doable. And the other, the other issue is that, um, you know, relatively speaking, when you're trading in these small amounts, these relatively small amounts, like it's not, you, you know, what we knew is that wouldn't necessarily draw attention at smaller amounts. Like, it, but if we started, if we became, you know, if we had $50 million, right, then you, you can't really like, you know, put all $50 million into a, uh, a stock, especially a smaller stock without it drawing a lot of attention. So, you know, we knew not to do that. Um, so we just thought, well, we'll get our position up to, you know, where we can have about $3 million. We'll pay some taxes, you know, we'll s- split it up amongst the, the two of us and go, go on our way. And that was kind of the, that was kind of the plan. Um, so that was, yeah, that was the goal. And then, you know, I'd known enough about real estate investing and, you know, that, that sort of stuff that I knew, you know, if, we, you know, I had a couple million and I could, you know, give it to his, give it to my friend through a deal or something that from that point, just by purely, if you did nothing else, but did conservative, low risk investing for the rest of our lives, like we would be like extremely wealthy. <laughs> you know, like if we never, and that was like kind of my intention, right? I say, oh, okay, I like working these other jobs. I can do other things there. Maybe I can make more money doing something else. And then in the meantime, I'll just let my million dollars at, you know, uh, 21 years old, you know, turn into, you know, whatever it would be when I'm 60 and I'm, you know, and I'll like, it's kind of hard to screw that up, honestly. So that was kind of the, the plan. How much of the motivation here was I want to just get wildly rich so that I can lead a wildly rich lifestyle versus I don't want my future family to ever go bankrupt like my family did? Um, that's a good question. Uh, it wasn't about stuff. It, it's never been about stuff for me. I mean, even now, I don't like I don't care about things like it. <laughs> I think it kind of drives my wife nuts because you know, I love to drive a car into the ground. Like I really don't care. Um, I, I think uh, it's hard to pinpoint exactly like the deeper emotional sort of, uh, motivation for it. Meaning I don't, I don't know that I necessarily ever had a, yeah, I wanted to be financially secure for sure. Um, and I, I don't know that I was worried about, not being able to make income to provide for my family at that point. I think though, and I, I think I struggle to this, to this day, to be honest with you, I think 
for whatever reason, a lot of my self-worth was tied up in, in how much money I had. So if I could make a ton of money, then in my head, I would feel important. And so it wasn't really about buying, you know, houses or cars or, and I don't even really like, uh, this is another weird thing. Like I don't even really, I'm not interested in showing it off to people necessarily. It's, it's almost deeper than that. It's about my own kind of worth, you know? Um, and, and I think that that's, that's where it came from is that I didn't, you know, I didn't feel, um, I guess I didn't feel important unless I had a lot of money or I didn't feel, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's just like my worth was, was correlated to like the, the amount of money in, in an investment account. I totally understand that. I think because, you know, so much nowadays is tied to money in a sense, you know, I, th I think depending on how much money you make or, you know, what house you live in or all that, like, you know, people have these impressions and stuff. So, you know, I could see where society in some way kind of conditions us that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in the 1%, but you have to be quote unquote successful. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I've, I've thought a lot about this. Um, if you're, if you go to let's say a conference or something and listen to someone talk, you know, the person that has a billion dollars that has made a billion dollars, um, is that session's going to be packed and that the, every single word that that person says is going to be listened to by everyone, you know? Um, and <laughs> you know, it, and they're going to make news and they're going to, you know, it, it, it's not part of my, having my, my own worth tied up with the amount of money I had is in part my own delusion, but it's also, it's, it's heavily bolstered by societal, uh, reinforcement. You know, it, it's not that this doesn't come from nowhere. I mean, it, it is, you know, you make a ton of money and, and people care about you. <laughs> you know, like people want to hear from you. People value your judgment. People value your opinion. They think, you know, you're really smart. They think you're really hardworking and they think, you know, whatever. And that's, um, it, it still goes on, to, you know, now. And I, I, I've gotten older and understand things more, but it's, it's, it's still something that, that I, I fight personally, I would say. And that, um, um, you know, I, I think it actually drives a lot of people who have money, um, because they're so obsessive about it and they're so, um, focused on it. And it, what is, particularly destructive about that mentality is that you can never, ever satisfy it, you know, because there, it, there's not a number necessarily. It's not that, Oh, you have a million dollars and you, you feel satisfied or you have $10 million and you feel satisfied. It's, it's never, it's never quenched. I mean, it just, you know, when, you know, you just think the more money I have, the more, um, the more important I am or the more I feel good about myself that just never, you can never get away from that. So, um, it's a thing in society and I, and I, I think it's, um, I think it's a problem uh, to be honest with you. And I, and I don't, I don't think that I've gotten totally away from it. I agree with you that it's a problem and I, I do think it's hard to get away from, you know, I think we're all guilty of it. Um, so you start making these trades 
Um, as you mentioned, you know, first one money made overnight. Uh, eventually, the SEC takes notice of this activity. Um, what, like, how did you find out that the SEC is taking notice? Did they just show up at your door or they gave you a call? Yeah, so I remember this pretty vividly. Um, I was working at a at a company um, that was like actually in the tech space and um, they were kind of doing an early version of co-working. And anyway, there's this hot tech company and they were growing really fast and they were going public and it was a big exciting time. And I'd taken a break back from that job and I went to the dentist and I remember I, I got back from the dentist and I had my phone. And a number came up I didn't recognize, and which is back in the day when, you know, you picked up <laughs> numbers you didn't recognize. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, different world back then. Yeah, different world. And I answered the phone, and I said, hello. And they said, is this Ryan Evans? And I said, yeah. And they said, this is Susan Weiss from the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I thought, oh, God. I just, like, immediately a pit, like, was in my stomach. I just felt sick. And I was listening and I thought, okay, you know, we'll just listen to what they had to say, like answer any questions. Cause keep in mind that I didn't really, part of me was like, I, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. I, I and just to reiterate, like looking back on this, like I should not have done this. You know, this is like, I knew better than to do this, but there was also part of me that was like, yeah, I, I shouldn't have done this, but technically I think we might be okay here. Like it's not, it's not as clear cut. You know, it's, it's, it's not a clear cut law. So she started asking me questions and I answered the questions. It was like, I see you bought, did you buy this stock? And I was like, yeah, I bought this stock. And she said, why did you buy this stock? And then I started asking a little more probing questions. Like, why did you buy this stock? You know? And I thought, uh, okay, like, I'm not gonna, I think I should probably <laughs> stop talking. So I said, you know, can you tell me a little bit? Why, why are you asking me these questions? And they said, well, we can't tell you like why we're asking these questions. And I said, okay, well, I can't, I can't talk to you about this anymore then. And, uh, so I just, I hung up the phone and then I went back to the place I was working and my heart was racing. I felt sick. I was like kind of panicked. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I went and I had a boss, my boss at the time, um, was, uh, had become a good friend of mine. And I, I kind of, I told him what had happened and he said, oh, well, you know, so I come out, what I, he's like, it's not a big deal. I mean, you can't, now, he knew me as being a 21, whatever year old, like, analyst. he's like, what, I mean, would you buy like a thousand dollars of stock? Like, I, I can't imagine why they would like care. And I was like, well, I said, I, you know, I have like over $300,000 in my account now. <laughs> and he was like, what? And I said, yeah. Where did you find the strength to tell this? I, I know he's a, a friend of yours, but I mean, yeah. like you're aware of just the magnitude of what you've done to some yeah. extent. How did you go back and tell him right away? I mean, that's that's a bold move on your part. You know, I would be scared to death, to be honest. I, I, I didn't tell him all the details. Like I didn't tell him anything that would be, I'm like, look, I got a call from Securities and Exchange Commission. I, it, it's something to this effect. I don't remember exactly, but... I got a call from the Securities and Exchange Commission. You know, it's a it's around insider trading. I'm really worried about it. You know, and and he was a very close friend. And I, and he, I said I need an attorney because <laughs> I had no. I mean, keep in mind, like I had 
no idea like about <laughs> he was like the most successful guy you know that i had known or a guy that I, I knew was connected and he had gone to school like gone to school with lawyers and all this stuff so i just needed i needed him to understand the importance and the immediacy of it and i didn't tell him all the excruciating details but you know, it sounded like you also might have went to him for for help like oh you yeah thought he, he could help you through this okay a- absolutely yeah so and, and yeah and keep in mind too like like I didn't tell anyone anything ever. <laughs> like I didn't, this was not something that I bragged about. This was not something that um, we ever talked about uh, on the Did phone. Did anyone in your family know about this? Nobody like, did your knew parents about it. Or, okay. Parents didn't know about it. My sister didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it. So anyway, I went to the, uh, I went to the attorney and they were like, wow. Okay. Well, um, they're like, okay, here's the kind of like laid out what's going to happen. They said, here's what's going to happen. You know, Securities and Exchange Commission, they're going to look into this. Um, they're going to sue you. So, you know, all that money that you have. Now, keep in mind, like I had grown that money from, you know, 20 to 30 to 60 and kind of, you know, this is just a rough swag here. The 60 to 120 to 240 roughly. And then, you know, along the way too, there were some wins and losses. Like we didn't necessarily hit every, every trade. Sometimes, you know, something would fall through and it didn't work and we would lose a little money on, a, on, on something. And sometimes, you know, we would buy a position and nothing happened. Um, and there were months that had gone through. So this was over the period of, I don't know, maybe it was like six months or so. And that we had gotten to a point where it was about 330 grand or so in the account. So keep in mind that like, because of the exponential growth, like we were actually pretty close to that, to, to like X, to, to our, our goal. Right. So if, you know, the, let's call it the 300 turned into six, you know, in another trade, which is not, wouldn't have been a crazy thing turned into 1.2, which wouldn't have been a crazy thing Two point, you know, we might've been only like three or four or five trades away from like hitting that number. Um, so anyway, like I, I go back to the, 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 going back to the attorney, I, I kind of laid out, you know, like what had happened. They said, look, Securities and Exchange Commission is going to investigate this. They're going to sue you, likely, and they're going to take all your money. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, again, like being young and naive, I just thought, well, all right, well, that'll just, that's fine. I'll go make more money. And well, 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 wait, hang on. That, that's a lot of money and you almost reached your goals, you said. And you also, I imagine, felt like you, to some extent, worked for it, quote unquote. So, mm. well, I mean, were you okay just well, letting it go or was there more to that? I, if it were me, I feel like I would have some strong feelings about this is my money. Uh, no, I, I really didn't. It, well, so part of this was that, um, you know, coming from small town going to college i was terrified going into college i was terrified that i was going to fail uh out and like have to go back to my town and like look like a failure or whatever so i worked really really hard and i got really good grades in college and i did well and then i worked really hard at you know the jobs that i had and as a result of doing that um things sort of like everything worked out meaning um, my grades worked out, the job that I wanted worked out, um, 
the stock trade now, again, this is like late nineties, every single stock that I bought just went up, you know, like even before the, um, even before this happened, um, you know, I was buying AOL and I was buying Amazon and I was buying, you know, like <laughs> these internet stocks and they were all going up at a ridiculous. So I, I sort of just didn't, and, and, you know, and it also had some success even at the job that I was doing, uh, you know, I was working on deals at a level that I probably shouldn't have been working on and I was getting compensated for it. And, um, so all of that was, I just, it, I sort of felt like, of, like I would just, it would just work out. Like I would just make more money. I, I always just figured out like once I had set it in my mind that I'm going to make more money and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to, you know, set my mind to it, that it would just be fine. And so I didn't really, <laughs> you know, like I didn't go through a market crash or uh, in it, around that time too, like the job market was ridiculously um, frothy too. So it's like, I could go get any job and I could go, you know, like it, it all did seem quite, quite easy to me. And so, yeah, I was certainly not happy about the situation. And I was like, it was very, when you're dealing with the government, it's very, I mean, it's stressful as all hell. I mean, you, you know, it, I don't want to like say it was no big deal at all, but I, for the money itself, I was like, okay, fine. Take that money. I'll go make some more. Like that was sort of like how I thought about it. You know, okay. I thought, so I see. So every all your experience making money through this practice thus far, everything had gone right. So you just assumed this yeah. is just one setback. I'll just get back yeah. at it. Everything will continue to go right. Yep. I thought, I mean, I was um, delusional probably in my, in my, my young ego was being fed constantly. Uh, so yeah, I just thought, well, I'll just go make more money. So, you know, like I know what I'm doing. I have this figured out. Like, it's, you know, no, no big deal. It might take me a little longer. <laughs> it might be a little, a little harder, but, um, I'll go figure out another angle or, or whatever. So anyway, they said, okay, you'll be sued, whatever. And so then what had happened from there is that this long, painful process of them suing you drug out. And when they sue you, it's this stressful because not just because they can take the money, but they also can assign penalties. So they can say, um, if you may this is what they started out doing. They said, okay, well, you made this $300,000. We're going to sue you for triple the amount of that. So we're going to sue you for a million dollars, right? And, you know, like when the government sues you, it's not just like you can declare bankruptcy and move on. Like, you you know, there's a legitimate, you know, like you'll have to pay back a million dollars for for the rest of your life. So that was quite stressful. Um, I didn't tell any of my family that I was going through this. So I had this attorney... And, you know, I was paying the attorney out of the money that I had. The attorney was drawing down that money <laughs> on, a, on a pretty regular basis, like fighting with the government. And ultimately we did settle and they just basically, uh, I can't remember exactly the timeline, but it, it, I think it had taken a couple of years and, um, they took all the money that I had. And then I had my job at the time I'd, I'd moved on to a different job and there was no real, repercussions in it, no penalty, no anything like that. They had just sued me. We called it a day and, um, that was that. And so I was like, okay, it's fine. And this is pretty much what all the attorneys thought was going to happen. And it was going to be the end of it. And so I kind of gone about my life. I had a, a, another good job. Um, I was working on in finance and doing everything. And then, 
you know, I had uh, met this girl and we were dating a very serious, like kind of hit it off right away. And we were dating for, I don't know, a month or two. And I kind of, and I told her about this situation. I said, look, I'd gone through this thing. Um, you know, the government sued me. There's a possibility that something more could happen from this, but I, I really don't think that's, that's likely. Um, and, but did you, you know, I, did you tell her before you told your parents? Um, let me think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's wait a minute. minute. Let me think about this. No. So here's what, yeah. So here's what happened. Actually, this is all, it gets a little blurry, but the government had sent some like legal documents to my, (laughs) to the wrong address to like the, my home address. Uh, Yeah. And my mom saw it and she kind of freaked out and said, what is this? And I said, look, it's not, and I, I'm like, this is not a big deal. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so ridiculous now downplaying it. It's not a big deal. The government sued me. We're settling. It's fine. It's over, you know, kind of like, I kind of had this, like, don't worry about it. Mind your own business attitude, which is not, not very nice. But, um, and so she, you know, that's all I would say about it. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, told her what had happened generally, but, it, you know, that, so she, I take that back. So she knew about it, but also th- then months had passed and like nothing happened. So like, I think everybody just kind of like what, forgot about it, whatever. So then, yeah, so a good question. So then, but she knew about it. My dad didn't know about it. Like nobody else knew about it. Um, and then the, um, I told my girlfriend and, you know, and then I was working in my office. Now, keep in mind, I got a job. I was in the old Sears Tower, now Willis Tower, whatever they're calling it. And I had a job. I was on the 93rd floor at a view of the lake. Um, I was, you know, very happy doing it. And I got a call from my attorney. I said, Ryan, so you're not going to believe this. Um, but I had a call from the government uh, and they're going to indict you. <laughs> I thought, oh my God. Now indictment, you know, means that people are more familiar with it now <laughs> in the political environment, but indictment means that they are going to basically press charges or they're going to, you know, try to go after you criminally, which usually means potential jail time. And I just, I just couldn't believe it. I was shell shocked and just in a total like days, I, you know, called my uh, girlfriend at the time, you know, and said, let's go meet for lunch. And I said, look, um, they're going to indict me. You know, this is what's going on. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, I'm not, I'm going to fight it. And, uh, you know, this is going to happen. So now keep in mind, I felt fairly confident in the uh, legal case that we had because the, 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 uh, law was was very gray. So, but the but government they just the, they just took all your money um, from yeah. the, the civil case, right? And right. you still, I, I'm just amazed here at your confidence and your strength. And like, I'm guessing this came from the research you and your friend did at the beginning of all this, where you understood that there's a pretty little, ch- a pretty small chance you're going to get caught. But I mean, now regardless of that, they've taken all your money. You've gone through the stress of the trial. How did you still feel confident? Well, so <laughs> that's a good question. I'm not really sure. Um, that, yeah, they had taken all my money and they give you a public defender, like they call a federal defender, which is a public defender for the federal system. And uh, 
Yeah. So I, I had no money to defend myself whatsoever. Um, and, but the, the thing was, I just, there was no, like part of my confidence came from just youthful naivete. Right. I, I just didn't understand. I, and the lawyer tried to drill it into me. They said, look, you know, when the government goes after you, like it, they either get a conviction or a um, confession 99 out of 100 times or something like that. Like they don't lose. Like they don't, you know, this is not, you know, they're trying to convince me of that. And I, and I just that's, thought. That's really scary odds. Yeah, it, it is. It's crazy. But like the thing is, I kind of had an attitude about it. I was like, you know, screw them. You know, like this isn't like, I don't think this is technically illegal. And, you know, I kind of got an attitude of like a not attitude, like I got defensive and I was like, well, this isn't right. Like, I, okay, fine. You sue me. I get it. You take the money. Fine. But now it's, it's like, okay, you want to put me in prison and call me, you know, felon for the rest of my life for this. It sort of didn't strike me as almost fair, I guess. And so that was part of it. And then also you have to understand there was no evidence really. The evidence was that my friend and I were best friends. <laughs> and because we were best friends, we talked all the time on the phone. And he had like insight into these deals, right? And I traded on these deals, right? It wasn't a perfect overlap and everything because there were deals that he didn't work, you know, that he didn't work on that I traded on, some that he did that I traded on. They all, you know, all these big wins came from the investment bank. Okay. So it's like, this isn't exactly like random, <laughs> but, um, there was no email. I never emailed him and said, Oh, I'm going to do this. There was no exchange of money between myself and him. And believe me, they went through every single bank account, every single email, every single, any kind of communication. And, and I knew there was nothing there, you know? So, um, yeah, it was just like, well, yes, I understand circumstantially that, you know, he's my friend. I made the trades at the company, you know, that he, that he's working on, like advise these other companies on, but there is no smoking gun here. There's no, and also by the way, like, is this illegal? You know, there's no exchange of money, you know, there's no whatever. So anyway, I, that was, that was the, uh, the background of, of what I was going into this with. And so, the attorneys, you know, were also not, you know, a lot of times in these, these federal attorneys, I mean, they get a case and it's like, you know, there's a literal smoking gun or they open the trunk and there's like 50 kilos in your car that you know, that's like registered <laughs> in your name, you know, and it's like, okay. And this was definitely not that. So they were, I almost feel like they were a little bit excited to work on it just because they're like, oh, I think we got a shot at this one, you know? Um, so yeah, we go to trial and, um, it's, it's a crazy, really crazy experience. So it, it, keep in mind, this is all truncated and, you know, like mouse years have gone by, right? So when we did this, it was like, we're 21, 22, whatever. Now we were, I don't know, 25, you know, something like that. 26. I don't, I don't know. Remember exactly the, the ages we were, but are you still time, with your girlfriend at this point? The, the, the girlfriend, girlfriend from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. And, um, What's crazy is um, my girlfriend, um, her parents came to the trial and my parents came to the trial and that was the first time that they had met was in the federal trial. So I had to do the whole, 
mom, dad, <laughs> this is, you know, this is Susie oh Rich. Yeah. That, that was the first time they had ever met. Um, so the whole thing was terribly embarrassing for me. This is, this is the point, you know, where it's like, you know, you can feel your ego like breaking down. And so I, uh, we did the, we did that, you know, did the intro, they sat there, the trial was about, so my buddy and I were co-defendants in the trial and, you know, they picked the jury, they, it's all big formality that takes a day, you sit down, um, you know, they present opening arguments and, and then they go through all these witnesses, you know, the witnesses are, it's very boring, very mundane. And especially because we actually did not contest almost anything that they said, you know, they said, these guys are friends. Ryan made all this money, you know, um, you know, and so people would testify like, are you friends? You know, like they were trying to, they were, they're getting witnesses out there and to, I think, try to like elicit some sort of admission or find out, shake loose some sort of evidence or, or whatever. But there really wasn't anything there. It was just, were you friends with them? You know, what, you know, did this and that happen? And I was just like, yes, yes, yes. And we didn't really like a lot of times we didn't cross examine anyone. We were just like, yeah, I mean, all this happened, but, um, so we had kind of gone through this and we had tried to get the case dismissed because we said, look, there's not a kickback here, you know, whatever. And we thought that probably the case would be dismissed by a judge, but this is where I got my education in the legal system. The judge just decided, nah, no, like, I'm not going to dismiss it. <laughs> like, I don't agree with your legal like theory. So we're going to just let this, you know, let this go on. So anyway, they went through all this, um, this trial. It was kind of confusing. And then the jury, you know, after about, uh, I think it was like a week and a half or so of, of trial, the jury came back. And I, I remember this like quite vividly where we were sitting there and I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, it took them quite a while to deliberate. And, um, it's just weird. They had like the bailiffs. So the guys with the chains and the you know, cuffs were there. They'd come into the room when they were reading the verdict. And I thought, holy crap, like this is, this is really intense. Like if I'm convicted, like, they're going to take me into prison right now. And, um, they just, they went down the charges and then, um, they read my friend's, uh, uh, charges first and they were, he was not guilty not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. He was not guilty on every single count. And then they read mine and there was, this is a little complicated, but they, they have a bunch of charges and there was a conspiracy charge, which is like him and I being in cahoots basically. And I was found not guilty on that charge. And then there were some other charges and the jury was hung. They couldn't come to a decision on it. So we were just like, oh. it was like a sigh of relief, but also I was a little worried because I'm like, they're hung. Which So, when you're found not guilty, they can't retry you. You're done. It's over. Like they can't, my friend free to walk out the court, do whatever he wants, give him, you know, like big you know, salute out. And he was, that was it. And for me, I was not, I couldn't be charged in the conspiracy charge. Um, and then the other charges, they were hung. So, you know, my attorney was feeling really good. I mean, they don't get a lot of wins, <laughs> you know? And, um, is that, and they were like, look, I mean, it's going to be very hard for them to retry you because your friend has been found not guilty. You know, you know, the person you got information from is not guilty and you're not guilty of conspiracy. So it's like unlikely they're going to retry you. 
did you feel like you had gotten away with anything or did you genuinely feel like this is the right decision? I am innocent. I did nothing wrong here. Um, I don't, well, let me, so this is, that's a good question. So it, going through all this in, in my, my memory and opinions and whatever, it, it kind of, it's really hard to say exactly what I thought that, 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 um, time, but I think generally it was, you know, I really shouldn't have done this. Okay. And it, it, this was not like the ethically right thing to do. Meaning, you know, if your friend, if your friend's company, we weren't, we weren't idiots, like, right. We were young, but we were not idiots. If your friend's company, you know, has the secret information and it's his responsibility not to tell you that, like in, you know, it, and you really your responsibility, not for you not to share it with anyone or, um, you know, uh, <laughs> profit off of it, you shouldn't do it. Right. And that, that, that's kind of irrespective of the law. Like I knew better than that. You know, I knew better than that. Like I, I just, it was, you know, kind of violating values more than anything from, a, so I, I felt guilty about that. And I, and I felt in, I, I felt guilty about that because I went against my values and now the people who cared about me the most we're going through this awful thing because of my, um, my lack of judgment, right? Because I had gone against what I knew to be right. It didn't just affect me, which is kind of, I guess what I thought in my head, I wasn't really thinking through this. Um, no, it wasn't just me. It was like my girlfriend and her parents and, you know, my parents and my family and my people that I, you know, uh, I worked for and worked with and, all my friends, you know, my friends were being called to the stand to testify. So I had just an enormous amount of guilt and I felt ter- I felt really bad that all that had, that happened. And, it, and I didn't have any delusions that it was like, um, a, a case of mistaken identity or anything like that. Like, no, it was, it was my actions that caused that. And so I felt terribly for that. And I, and I still do, you know, um, when did your dad first find out about all this? Because I remember, you know, from the beginning, eventually your mom knew about this. When when he met your girlfriend's parents at the courthouse for the first time, yeah. is that when he first found out? Or had, did you have no. to tell him about this prior? I had to tell him. I mean, I had to. So um, I had to call him and just explain what had happened. I had to just say, look, and, and also with the legal, the way the whole legal system works, like, you kind of have to tell him, but not tell him everything because you don't want him to be at risk of having to testify or anything. So I said, you know, I just called him up and said, dad, I have something terrible to tell you. I'm like, I'm indicted. You know, and this is like, comes out of nowhere. You know, it's not like I've always been a problem kid and I've always been a, you know, troublemaker. I, I mean, I rarely got in trouble even at school. I'd never been arrested. I'd never like, you know, like just, had very little problems. And, and then all of a sudden it was just like, dad, I'm being indicted, going to federal trial, you know, <laughs> it's the state. And he was just, I mean, you know, it was one of the hardest calls that I made. And he just basically said something to the fact that he was like disappointed in me. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what else he, he said really. And then, um, so he knew at least a little bit about the context, but really didn't know much more than that. And then, I also had to call my girlfriend's parents and tell them what had happened for the first time. Again, they knew nothing. 
And that was terrible because I was completely in love with this girl and just, you know, I, I love, I had a ton of respect for her parents and, um, I didn't want them to think that I was a scumbag, but man, like you, <laughs> you got to tell them that you're, you're facing this. Yeah. What do you say to your girlfriend's parents that, you know, you're in love with this girl. Maybe she's the one for you. And now you have to call her parents and explain this. What do you say to them to kind of convince them that, you know, I'm a good person. I'm the one for your, your daughter, you know, forgive me. I mean, I don't know that there is a lot you can say um, other than what the situation is. I, I I don't remember exactly the details of the call, but it was it was it was something to the effect of. And I'm kind of you know, like I said, I like to joke around and stuff a lot. So I I said, look, before I get into this, like, I I know this is going to sound like a joke, but it's not. And I'm like, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to say, you know. But I'm going through this thing, and I've I've been indicted, and it's around insider trading, and. Unfortunately, I can't say a lot about it. I am so sorry that, you know, your daughter has to go through this. And I am, I, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I'm just like, this is a terrible situation. And, and it's also, again, a weird thing because you kind of can't, like your lawyers say, like, look, you got to be very, you can't tell anybody about anything anytime, you know, because for a lot of reasons, like one you know, the biggest thing is that they can be called to testify. So if you just sort of, you can't, you can't just like do an admission and say, I did everything they say, I'm really sorry. And you know, you can't do that. So it was just like, I, I can't say anything. I said when this, you know, I, something to the effect of like, I will tell you every, everything that happened and we're through this and you know, whatever. And, and that was like kind of it. Like it, it was just like, it just expressing how terribly I felt about the situation. And, um, you know, that that's that's what it was going to happen like that's really all that you can convey and i mean to their immense credit i mean they were support they're very supportive i mean they were um very kind and uh you know it's, i still sort of can't believe you know how amazing and, and uh, they were so uh yeah so you deliver that news um uh you, you go through this and then now the first trial was was done <sighs> And then the second trial happened. So then, you know, lawyers said, yeah, there's no way they're going to go through a second trial. And then they decided they were going to try it again. And we just thought, man, this is insane. But, you know, the first trial was like pretty good um, result. And did you still have confidence that second time around? Like when you find out, hey, your lawyer calls, they're going to retry you. Were you still like, we got this? No, I was not. <laughs> no, because I had seen, you know, you have a certain idea of how the legal system works and I was naive enough to, you know, watch too many, you know, courtroom dramas on TV to think, well, in order to like convict somebody, they have to actually break the law and there has to be evidence supporting it. And so, you know, a, there's no evidence supporting that I broke the law and B the law is like pretty confusing here. So I don't really don't see how they're going to do this. Right. But then going through the trial, you realize, well, that's all like fine, but the people, there's ultimately people making decisions here. So there's a judge. Um, there's a, we had a, this really old judge and like all the judges have different opinions on this stuff, you know? So some judges will say like, Oh, insider trading is really a, uh, strange law and it, it really, you know, needs to be, um, 
you know, defined further before you can lock people up for it. And some people think that, you know, insider trading, you know, they should like people should be punished for it. And it's a terrible thing. So our, our attorney, or I'm sorry, our judge went <laughs> broke a little bit on the, like insider trading is wrong and illegal or whatever. And, um, so, um, yeah. So like people decide that the judge makes that, that judgment call, you know, that, that decision of whether it's legal or not. Now you can always appeal their decision, right? There's an appeal process. But once I realized that he could just, you know, say, Meh, I don't agree with your legal interpretation of it, because what you do is you make a, you know, when you, you do motions to dismiss. And the other thing I should mention is that during this process, our, we had federal defenders, which were very capable, very smart, very hardworking people. I don't, they weren't like the, like stereotypical, like uh, public defenders that you see on TV. And those, those public defenders for the record do exist where they're just completely overworked. They're not, you know, they can't keep up with anything. They have nothing, you know, they have no shot at winning anything. It wasn't really that situation for us. So we had an intern, you know, that was like very smart, you know, intern at uh, university of Chicago and he was pulling case law and writing stuff. But also, you know, my friend and I were also researching and his, his attorney even was, I I think not as uh, I don't know what I would say, diligent or whatever. And so we were writing briefs for him, like doing research, writing the actual brief for his attorney, because, you know, he wasn't really on his A game and, you know, we didn't really have a lot of choice in terms of like who, who our attorney was. So um, anyway, uh, what? but once you see that process where you would submit something that you're like, this is obviously true, like this motion that we've put before the judge is like, you, obviously you can't go through the trial because it doesn't meet this, that, and the other, you know, legal element. And then the judge is like, nah, I disagree. <laughs> you know, It's like, what? And so once I saw that, so it, it, once I saw that happen, my confidence was completely blown up. And then the second thing is when we went, so we started the second trial, we had another motion to dismiss, which was based on, you know, basically, look, you can't try this guy because his friend is found not guilty and, you know, of conspiracy and, you know, everything else. So if this guy is not, you know, this is not exactly a legal argument, but the idea is like, if this guy is not guilty, then, uh, you know, how can you convict his friend on the, you know, there has to be, there literally have to be two people involved to have any kind of like insider trading and there isn't. And, and so, that argument you know, seems to make a lot of sense to me. I mean, if, if they're both equal on this and, and he's not guilty, then the second guy by default is not guilty. Right. Right. So it seems right. It seems logical, seems legally sound, all that. And the judge is like, "Nah, I'm not going to go with that ruling. And so he kind of like changed the, the, the common interpretation of insider trading law at the time, which was basically that you had to have some kind of kickback. Like that was kind of a sort of precedent that there has to be some kind of a money exchange hand or some kind of gift or some, some sort of something, some inducement to do that. Right. Otherwise it's like, what's the difference from just hearing it on the street? Like the example that I, that I gave you or, you know, um, so he said, nah, I don't, I don't agree with that. And once, once that happened, I was just like, Oh God, I mean, this is not good, you know, because, you know, you put a jury there and you put, you know, they, they get the FBI on the stand and they testify and it's like, you know, the jury for the most part is going to go along with what, you know, the government is alleging, 
you know, it's not, and, and, and we didn't even really necessarily like, so we didn't really dispute any of the facts. Like the only thing that we disputed was this was like t- technically not breaking the law and you're not allowed to argue that in court. <laughs> you can't say to the jury, which is another weird thing. Now you can't say to the jury, like, look, this judge is, has a, a misguided interpretation of the, you know, the law and we don't agree with it. And that, you know, that sounds arrogant now, right? Like, how are you to judge, you know, like determine the judge isn't, isn't, you know, right. But, you know, judges sometimes make mistakes and even our judges is like kind of a side note, but like he was falling asleep during our trial as kind of a little anecdote, like people what? were being called. Yeah. He was like nodding off. I mean, he was very old. I mean, I don't, he was 80 some years old or something like that. And he was nodding off uh, during the trial. And I'm just like, Oh my God. Uh, so long way to answer your question. No, I didn't feel confident the second round. And, you know, we went through the trial again. It was the same, almost the same thing, same exact witnesses, same exact everything else, same exact like charges are being alleged that he did it from this guy. Like they were still alleging that, you know, I, you know, got this information from this guy and whatever. And we were not also not allowed to say, well, Hey, by the way, the guy that you're talking about, he was found out guilty. I was not admissible in court. You know, there's all these like weird rules, rules and stuff. Right. So they basically alleged it. And then, you know, what I remember in the second trial was, um, my attorney gave the closing argument and he said this weird thing one time. We, we, he, we'd hit it off with my attorney. I think he got a kick out of us and he, you know, he thought we were like funny and I don't know, whatever. And this wasn't, you know, violating the worst end of the spectrum of, you know, moral, you know, like, you know, like we didn't, we didn't really, you know, do anything that was terribly morally objectionable, you know, to sure that this is bad, but, Right. It could be worse. Yeah. Right. Right. So he kind of clicked with us, and you know, one thing he confided, he's like, "Oh, yeah." So, how do you feel about the second trial? He's like, "Oh, yeah, it's, it's fine." But he's like, "Yeah, the second trial, it's always like you know, putting on a wet bathing suit, you know, meaning like, <laughs> like you don't really want to put on a, a wet bathing suit. It's like, okay, I'll do it, but and uh, okay." And then when he gave his uh, closing argument, and after he sat down, I just thought, uh, "That wasn't really, that wasn't really that great." you know, and that was it. Did you know at that moment that the outcome this time might be different? Well, after the trial, like the jury went again and deliberated and they didn't, you know, make a decision. So then it was overnight thing. And then, um, I went on this long drive with my girlfriend and my, uh, my, my co my former co-defendant at the time. And we just drove around. We drove, we, we, I think we got sushi and then we just drove. I just wanted to drive around, um, and just think and just, on that drive, I was like, this is not gonna, this is not gonna work. They're gonna convict me, I think. And uh, came back and, you know, next day and they uh, had a verdict and it was guilty. I was guilty on all, all counts. So this time they didn't have the bailiff, so they didn't take me in. I was actually free to leave. And uh, so at that point, um, that what, do you, what what was going through your head when when they actually delivered those words like that you are you know guilty i mean that must have just there would be a, a punch in the face i imagine yeah it's 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 shock i mean everything um it's like the world is quiet and you can hear every little thing and you can see every little thing you know um but it's like this 
I don't know. It, it, it's just this quiet sort of weight of reality that washes over you. And you don't know what, to, it's like your brain can't process the next thing. It's just, you're absorbing the reality. And then slowly you're starting to say, well, what's going to happen? What am I going to have to do? Whatever. And, and it's, you know, you're just in shock. And so I just realized, oh my gosh, like now, no, now keep in mind the bizarre thing is I still had my job. <laughs> so I was still in my working in my job. Now I had taken the, the week off or whatever for my trial, but, um, after the first, so before the first trial, I had to tell my employer, I said, look, um, kind of a similar conversation. I'm going, I've been indicted federally and I'm going to go through this trial and I can't say a lot about it, but you know, this is what's going to happen. I feel good about the case, whatever, but this is what's going to happen. And my boss at the time just like looked at me and he just had his like big open eyes and he's just blinking, like blink, like listening, blinking. And he said, okay uh okay <laughs> i said look i know you're gonna have to call people and figure things out i'm gonna leave for the day or whatever you call and figure out whatever you need to do and you know just let me know what you need to do and what to their to their credit they basically what they did is they said look we're going to keep you on as a contractor you can keep doing your same exact job that you were doing before um you know we're not uh we're not going to fire you like, cause you didn't, you know, you didn't really do anything wrong in our, for, to, to, you know, to us, or we can't make any determination about that. You didn't lie in your job application or, you know, anything. So you can, we're going to make you a contractor and you can keep working here. And so I was a contractor doing the exact same job that I was doing, same office, whatever. And then obviously then once you're convicted, I'm like, Oh, okay. My job is gone now. Um, I have to, um, you know, I have to eat. <laughs> So it's going to be kind of hard to get a job now, like in any kind of like capacity. Also, I'm probably going to go away here soon. Um, so my girlfriend, her, she, her, my girlfriend's friend's father owned this heavy equipment um, distributor out in the suburbs where they, you know, like, um, like bulldozers and stuff. They sold that kind of stuff. She said, look, you can go get a job out there. Like you'll make whatever it was at the time. I don't know, 12 bucks an hour or whatever. Um, you'll make 12 bucks an hour. Um, you're going to be like shipping parts and stuff. So I, you know, I basically did that. I went out and I worked out in this, uh, heavy equipment, uh, manufacturer and I was just, um, putting parts, these heavy parts in boxes and, um, doing that, that thing and, um, awaiting my sentencing. So, the thing that people don't realize in these, these stories is that again, like now sentencing is like months away, you know, it's not like, okay, you're convicted, you know, it like right away you, you go away. Sometimes it happens, but this was like, no, you're convicted. Now you got to wait in your sentencing. Okay. That's going to be a few months. So then, you know, before you get your trial and then after that, then you have to, you know, then there's like time before you actually go away. So this is like a lot of time elapses. So I went out and did that and um, I thought that I would get into this boot camp where it could just go for nine months. They had this like boot camp for young first time offenders. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And if you do a really good job, if you, whatever, you might be out in six months. So I thought, okay, this is great. 
And I went and I talked to the whatever probation person or whatever. And they said, Oh yeah, they don't, we don't have that program anymore. So you can't do that. And I was like, Oh God. So, um, anyway, I got sentenced and at the sentencing well, people, right. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you going to talk about the family letters? Yeah. So you go to get sentenced and then they said, look, if you can get anyone to write a letter for you, um, it does carry a lot of weight in the judge's mind. Um, so I, you know, got people to write letters. Um, I just said, Hey, look, I hate to ask you to do this, but if you could write a letter, um, to the judge, I would really appreciate it. And, you know, they just wrote these ridiculously heartfelt, amazing things and just, you know, said how, how wonderful I was and how whatever. And, um, was it hard to ask your family to do that? I mean, you're basically yeah. sort of asking them to have a large impact on your future here. Like, you know, they have the ability to hopefully make things better. Um, yeah. What, what, was that hard? Oh, it was terrible. I mean, I already felt, you know, I already felt horrible for the whole the whole thing. And now I'm asking them like, hey, by the way, can you tell the judge how wonderful I am? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I feel terrible about it. I sort of was like begrudging, like, okay, I, I guess I need to do this because I mean, it could be, it, you know, like it, it literally could mean the difference of another, you know, four months or, or, or whatever in my, I think I would, the range was 21 to 20. I can't remember exactly, but it, like it makes a significant difference. So they wrote letters. It was very, um, very hard to do that. The judge, you know, said it at the sentencing. I said, you know, based on the letters, like you, you know, this obviously was like a lapse of judgment or whatever. And you're a, uh, seem like a very kind and whatever. I don't remember what he said exactly, but he said some nice things. And he said, I sends you to 21 months, which is the lowest that I could have gotten out of that, that range. And, um, and then I just had to deal with that for a minute, you know, like, holy cow, like I'm, I'm really going to be here. I'm in, I'm going to have to go now. Keep in mind, I didn't actually still think that I was <laughs> going to be there for that long because we had a appeal, and I thought, you know what, this is like a crate. This situation that happened is crazy, and it's like if any kind of like higher court gets a hold of this, like there's they're going to overturn this. Like this is insane. Like one guy's found not guilty and then the other guy is like found guilty. I mean, it just doesn't make sense on its face. Wait a second. You still, I, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, yeah. you initially very first call, you're at the dentist to come back to work. The SEC calls, you might be in trouble here. Yeah. You end up being in trouble. Um, they do a civil case. They take all your money and say, all right, you know, as kind of retribution and all right, we're done. Mm -hmm. They then come back and say, actually, we're going to try you criminally with a potential prison time. Hung jury. You're like, okay. They now try you again. And we talked about how you, at that point, you didn't have much confidence. Right. They now successfully have tried you that second time, are now sentencing you, and yeah. you still have hope that this could oh, go yeah. right. How, where do not, you find this hope? Or I mean, not. I wouldn't even say it was hope. I I, I would even say of like it, it, like I'm probably going to get out of here. Is is kind of how it. Part was of it, it was, was it confidence? Was it just strength? Was it you know if it wasn't hope, then it was almost you were you were founded in some belief or some evidence that this was going to work in your favor. 
it, there's two levels to it. There's almost the intellectual level where I realize like people around me are flabbergasted, meaning attorneys and stuff. They're sort of in disbelief that this happened. And it just saying, you know, legally this isn't right, you know, sort of thing. like it, it's, it's <laughs> This is just a bizarre case. I mean, there's, there's, you know, now there's like, you know, case you can, you can look at it and there's like, you know, it's probably studied in, in law school because it's a bizarre case. So I'm hearing that level. I understand way more of a legal nuance than what any normal person should, um, because I've read cases and precedents and rulings and, you know, sometimes these things do get overturned, you know? And so I've, I've seen, I've read all that. So I have this like intellectual sort of level to it where I realized like, this isn't right. Like it, it this, this is probably going to get overturned, whatever intellectual level. But then I think on a, be- a a deeper base level, I just can't, I just can't accept it. I can't, you know, like, I just can't face that reality. Like how do you go into that and just realize, okay, I'm going to have to sit here for a year and a half and just do nothing. Year. Like it's kind of hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. So I think also part of it is just like, I didn't want to face that reality. I, you know, okay, fine. I can go in there for a few months and then I get overturned. I can, I can deal with that reality. Okay. <clears throat> but going in there for a year and a half. No, I can't, I can't accept that. So I think that's the other part of it. Um, so, you know, they sentenced me, you have some time to get your affairs in order and it's just like, you know, it's like preparing to die. You're, you're like, okay, um, I need to share my passwords with people, I guess I need to, I don't know, I guess have an autoresponder on my email that I'm not checking my email <laughs> for, for, tw- for 21 months. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, you know, I still have like student loan debt to pay back. So, which is another bizarre thing. Like I never, you know, I had never paid off my student loan um, debt to the whole the whole thing and did um, you did you feel like your life was being put on pause or did you feel like your life was just kind of ending in a sense it's it's like you're frozen in you know a block of ice and it's not that you're dead because uh, the the weird thing about it is that you can see everyone's life um, going on without you in it right so life keeps going but you're just on the side, right? You're, you're, you can see it all happen. Um, but you're not in it, you know? So weddings and funerals and parties and all that kind of stuff, like you hear about it, but you're not in it. People, you know, it's, it's a very, very bizarre, terrible, terrible experience. Um, but so they, you know, they sends me and then you have time to get your affairs in order. And then I drove up, um, with my girlfriend to, uh, to Wisconsin, Oxford, Wisconsin. And, um, it's a middle of nowhere and you drive up and you pull into this institution. It looks like almost, it kind of reminded me of a school, which is weird, but it's like a government building. So I guess that kind of makes sense. But, um, and I was in a minimum security, which means I was in a camp. And so this is another thing that people need to understand the distinction. Camp is, is the best that you can get in any kind of, well, there's home arrest and stuff like that, probation, which is better, but a camp, if you have to be away, like a camp is where you want to, where you want to be. There's no fence. 
you know? So there's no, like, they literally had these little signs that say out of bounds around them. And so if you step over the, that imaginary boundary, they can add sent, add time to your sentence. Okay. So people don't do it. <laughs> people respect that invisible line. Um, but there's, you know, there's, you know, very few guards there. Um, the, the, the inmates pretty much run the camp. They clean it. They, you know, do whatever. Um, there's a nice outdoor area. So they have like a walking track. They have, uh, um, you know, tennis courts, they have, you know, basketball, they have, um, you know, baseball field, um, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, I walk into this, this camp and I'm crying. I'm, you know, hugging my girlfriend. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't want it to happen. And then there's this, you know, security guard saying like, enough of that. Come on in here, you know, cut that out. You got to get in here. Now's the time, you know, and I just like walked away, you know, tears in my eyes, walking in. And then, you know, like the weird thing about these situations is like everybody wants to see who the new guy is. So everybody's lined up, like looking out the window, whatever. They're yelling, they're cracking jokes, they're trying to figure out who I am because you're going to be part of their life. And, so one, it's like kind of entertainment. It's like a new guy. It's like, what's, what's his deal? Is he crazy? Is he, you know, what did he do? What's, you know, what's the situation? I'm, I'm terrified. These are, these are like big, some of these are big dudes. Like you see these big guys. I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. You know, some are all tatted up, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and now this is a federal camp. So what that means is it's first time nonviolent offenders. So it, there are business people there. There's politicians there. Um, and, but th there's also drug charges there. And the thing to understand is that the people that were in there were caught the first time in a nonviolent charge, but that does not mean that they're nonviolent people. Like <laughs> just because you were caught for one thing doesn't mean that you sure. were not like this crazy gangbanger that killed like five people. Right. But so all those people were in there. Um, but they were just caught for not about now another distinction. There was very little violence in, in that prison. So I walk in there and I'm, you know, terrified, but those people, and the reason that there's not violence in that prison is because right down the hill, like you can literally see it on the hill. There's a real prison. It has the barbed wire, the huge fence, the guard towers, you know, guards with guns in it. And so if you do anything wrong, your punishment is to go down to real prison and, you know, either for a little bit or to serve out the rest of your time there. And nobody, no matter how tough, no matter how crazy you are, nobody wants to go to that. You know, if you have, you know, a year left or two years left or five years left, you don't want to go down the hill to real prison where it is, it is, there is more violence. It is harder, you know? So it was, so I got in there and, you know, they give you your clothes and I'm feeling terrible and feeling sorry for myself. And I'm talking to this guy and who's giving me my clothes and the prisoners are running everything. And he's just asking me a couple of questions, you know, how, what's your deal? How long are you in here for? And I don't, I'm trying to avoid saying stuff. And I'm just like, I, you know, I'm here for you know, a sentence of 21 months and, you know, kind of just feeling sorry for myself. And then I'm like, what about you? What's your deal? And this other guy was in for a financial thing and, and you know, he was in there for like eight years. <laughs> And so I just thought, holy cow, like, this is not really, you know, 
I can't really just tell everybody how distraught I am right now <laughs> because, you know, some people were in there for eight years. Some people were coming down, what they call coming down from another, another place where they were serving out a 20 year sentence and they were on the last like 10 of it or something. And they were in oh, the wow. camp. Yeah. Like they're in the camp because they were, had, you know, were on good behavior for a long time or whatever. And so I quickly realized, yeah, you, you're not gonna like, you're not gonna like <laughs> get a lot of empath- empathetic ears here. So, you know, just, you know, go, go do what you got to do. And, you know, don't, don't feel sorry for yourself. So your, your girlfriend drops you off at prison, right? Mm-hmm. Did you, did you think that you two were going to kind of survive this, what you thought was going to be a full 21 month sentence? I mean, together as a, as a couple? I did. Um, I was certainly worried about it. I, I, I did think that. Um, and the thing is when you get in there, you know, the, the, like the people like to mess with you too. It's just like entertainment. They're like, okay. Uh, yeah, you have a girlfriend. They kind of laugh like, okay, yeah, I'm sure she'll, they're like sarcastic. I'm sure she'll stay with you. Cause you're like, oh yeah, I think, I think we're good. And I think we'll stay through it. And then throughout your time there. And, and I did believe that, but it's something I worried about a lot because like throughout the time, like you would see people go through divorces in prison. You would see, you know, the women leave, you would see it would happen all the time. Like it was just like, boom, 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 boom. It was just over time. Like they would start out staying and then eventually like they would leave. And it happened all the time, not every time, not everyone, but it happened very, uh, it happened a lot. So I, I was, I was, I mean, and you're in prison, you have like infinite time to think about everything. So yeah, I worried about it. I thought about it a lot, but I felt you know, confident. I felt good. And, um, we got to talk. So the way that works there is you get, they, they make you pay for this, like a very expensive phone time, but essentially I got to talk for 300 minutes a month. And so I just budgeted out. I, I don't know. I talked to her, I think like nine minutes a day or something. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, you would stand in line for the pay phone and I would talk. And then I wrote letters. I wrote letters, you know, every, every day I would write her a letter and she wrote me every day and, um, uh, I would write anybody, you know, I'd write my family, anyone who wrote me, I would, I would write them back. Um, I kind of settled into routine. I studied Spanish a little bit. Uh, I read a ton of stuff, um, and I wrote letters and, and I worked out and that's, that's pretty much what I worked out. And then I helped one of the kind of funnier things is, um, I got into some good cells, like some good, like this is an important thing is you want to be with a good group of people that you're living with. And so each room is about a 10 by 11 room and you share it with, uh, you know, there's either four or five guys in that 10, 10 by 11 room. So you're, it's important to get in there with people that are not totally insane and that <laughs> you, and that you just generally get along with. And I was fortunate that I got into, um, a room like that and, the best like cook in the camp was there and what he would do is he would get food out of the kitchen or you could buy it at this little store this commissary store and we would just mix up food like like you take he was italian so you would do a lot of pasta and a lot of you know stuff like that and you just take stuff and it's kind of ridiculous like you would as pasta you would use ramen noodles the noodles from the ramen she wouldn't put in the, you know, and then you'd get like tomatoes from the kitchen and then you'd cook up the tomatoes and like you'd, he'd make this own sauce. So <laughs> we, we got in there in, a, in part of my contribution was just helping him cook every, every night, you know, like 
chopping up garlic and doing the whole thing. Um, so yeah, like you kind of settle into life and you, and you figure it out. But I, I, I felt good in a relationship and, you know, my girlfriend came up and visited, uh, every week, every, you could have visitation every other weekend. And she came up every other weekend. I think she missed, you know, one or two times. Um, she came up every other weekend. She visited for, for both days. Uh, you sit there in a visitation room and, um, you just sit there and talk. And as a vending machine, she brought like a bag of quarters. And so we would get, uh, a burger out of the vending machine and put it in the microwave. That was like our lunch. And you just sit there and talk the whole time. And the question that people always ask that, that they don't want to ask is <laughs> they always say, well, were there conjugal visits? And the answer is no, there are no conjugal visits in federal prison. For the, for the record, <laughs> I wasn't going to ask that. <laughs> but I'm I know, glad but we it's, cleared the air. But listening, like there's a ton of people who are like, oh, I wonder if, the, you know. So, um, did you, did you, did her coming there every other weekend? I mean, I imagine it helped you feel connected to the outside and to your, to your life outside, but did it also, yeah. I don't know, just help you keep going like yeah. that, that strength to actually know that you're going to get out and you're going to get reconnected back to her in your life eventually. It was everything. It, it was absolutely everything for me. Um, you can't, you know, visitation is so critically important. I mean, people look forward to it days, you know, with three days before it happens and you, it's this weird thing. Like you get like quote unquote dressed up for your visitation, which is just like you're like in prison, you can wear this like green, like, I don't know, whatever, like pants and shirt that they give you and people would get them ironed and you know, whatever, and make it as sharp as you could. And that can normally you wear like sweatpants and like a t-shirt. Uh, and so, yeah, people would get dressed up. They would, they would, um, take, you know, magazines and you know how there are, um, like cologne samples in men's magazines, you would open up the cologne, uh, sample, and then you would just rub it on your shirt <laughs> to, uh, you know, to try to do whatever you could to, uh, to look good for your visitation. And then, um, yeah, it was, it was crucial to, um, to getting through the time. And I think it is for, I think it is for everyone. Um, was she the one that picked you up when you finally got out? Yeah. Yeah. So when we got out, she's the one that picked me up and, uh, we're married now we have three kids been married, uh, you know, for 12 years. So yeah, she's pretty awesome. I would say so. That's, <laughs> you know, this is that journey. I imagine had to have been so hard on you. I mean, everything we've talked about, but she, you and her met pretty early on in it. Um, and so she, to some extent, experienced a lot of this from another perspective. And I imagine it was pretty hard on her too. So that speaks a lot to you both that you made it through. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's a super strong person and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was just as hard, if not harder on her. I mean, you know, like, it's like she's got to, you know, you know, people would say, you know, she'd talk about her boyfriend occasionally, like at work, and they would like want to meet him, and I would never show up. And it's like one of these things, like, do you really have a boyfriend? <laughs> You're never at the happy hour. You're never at the yeah, party. right. Um, so yeah, it was it was very hard for her, and I, and you know, like friends and stuff. Not most of her friends didn't do this, but like you know, occasionally. You know, I'm sure people were like, what are you doing? 
<laughs> you're really you're, you're with this guy who's in prison. Like, is that that a good life choice? You know. Um, but to her credit, yeah, she she hung in there, and um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll never I'll never forget it. And I mean, unfortunately, it's probably leveraged to her to this day. Where I find myself doing dishes some days, where I'm like, ah, I still I still guess I'm paying down this <laughs> this uh, favor. <laughs> How important is is gratitude to you? I, I imagine throughout this process, you had so many people. I mean, your family you reached out to for the letters, your girlfriend and now wife, that that helped you along the way. The lawyers, um, and you know, I've seen you express that in different ways. That you're just so thankful for everyone. I'm, I'm curious, like, is that important to you to kind of express gratitude for all the help you got? Yeah, the thing is. You know, where I said, you know, I, I had all this stuff. I had money. I had a reputation. I had a career. I mean, people looked at me as successful. And when you show up to prison and they take your, what they call street clothes, your regular clothes, they strip you down, like naked. They search you. And I just remember thinking like, at that point, like, I am stripped down literally to absolutely nothing. Like, I have nothing. And as bare as you are stripped of all those things, I still felt grateful because as little as I had, I'd still had family that cared for me. I still had, uh, my girlfriend, I still had people who loved me and, you know, supported me. And so that was one of the biggest lessons that I took out of this is that, you know, if you have that, everything's going to be okay. Like if you have, um, you know, that love and support and connection to people, um, then it's gonna be okay. And I'm, I'm forever, forever grateful for, for that and for the people in my life. Um, because it, it really is like, it's easy to get distracted with all the modern trappings of the world, but when you're stripped down to absolutely nothing, you realize that, that how important that is and how everything else is like, yeah, okay, I can get through this. I can do this if you have that. So yeah, I am, I am grateful for that. I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time today to, to chat about this. I know that, like you said, you haven't necessarily talked about this a ton in public and this is a very deep personal journey that you've been on. And I really do appreciate you sharing it with me. Um, I, I always take notes during this and I have two pages of a piece of paper covered here in various, uh, nuggets. So, um, yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. Yeah. Tim, thanks so much for uh, having me on and for for talking about it. I, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, leave us a review, and give us some stars. Thanks.